Uh, thank you for, again, the invitation. I want to talk a little bit about uh, movements and creating movements and, and, uh, and why that matters. The theme, of course, of the conference and the hashtag, by the way, of the conference is Multiply13, which is a great connection to what we're talking about today. But also, you know, it's, it's part of even the directors here. We think about the passion that... Uh, that, uh, you know, that, 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 that they've brought to this, this desire that they have is to sort of point to uh, something more than simply a, an addition movement, but something that also points to a multiplication movement. And so, so you know, with Al and Andrew and, 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 and Mikey and, and the team here as well, they're all sort of pointing to what would it look like to have genuine movemental Christianity uh, in Australia? And so we've heard some people here who are part of church planning teams that sort of pointed to that. Uh, we've gathered together. Geneva pushes here because of that vision, because of that desire. And so why doesn't that just happen? And that's what I want to talk some about. So this is just going to be a lecture largely on, uh, on missiology. This is uh, hopefully something that will encourage you because I don't know about you, but, but I'm tired of hearing about movements around the world, but not hearing about movements where I live or where you live. Now, um, now it's, not, it's, not that, it's not that they're bad. Uh, matter of fact, they're good. And, and it's not that, it, it, and they provoke us to love and good deeds. Again, Hebrews 10, 24. But, but the reality is we hear about these explosive movements in, in, uh, in, 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 the, Indian, in, in the Asian subcontinent, the, we, in South Asia. We hear about these explosive movements in parts of Africa or even in in Central and South America, and, and of course we can, we can as people are often, you know, will do and say, well, they're doing this wrong and they're doing that wrong, but here's the deal, here's the deal. If, if we could see the kind of church planting movements that David Garrison defines in his uh, shorter book and then his longer book called Church Planting Movements, this rapid uh, reproducing indigenous movement of churches within a given population segment or a people group, uh, with all the imperfections that were there, it would sure be a whole lot better than what we're experiencing in the West. Uh, again, it'd be easy to sit back and say, well, they're doing this wrong. Wait, here, but here's the deal. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. We're in a season and a state of, of decline uh, in, in the West, in the Christian commitment in the West. We know that. Um, the, you know, 61% of Australians now identify as as Christian, and really you can divide that into three categories. Uh, one, one would be cultural Christians. I was born in Australia, therefore I'm a Christian, and, and that would certainly make up a, a good chunk of that. Maybe a, another portion of that, of the self-identified Christian population, would, uh, would be congregational Christians. So, you know, one would be cultural Christians. Again, I'm using their self-identification language. Uh, they would say, I'm a Christian because I was born in Australia. Some would say, I'm a Christian because I was, I was baptized, I was christened into a, into a church. And so there's some loose connection to a church, and and but but and that number is declining. But 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 even among the convictional Christians, those who who are committed to Christ and have have identified maybe even an experience of gospel change in their lives, uh, that number too has been declining. Now that number is not declining as fast as 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 cultural Christians and congregational Christians. As a matter of fact, in Australia and in most of the West, those categories are collapsing. The categories of cultural Christianity, I, I call myself a Christian because I was born in a Christian heritage nation, and congregational Christian, I call myself a Christian because I was christened or baptized or had some loose connection to a church. Those, those that, that what we call uh, the squishy middle is collapsing, and and so what we find remaining is a, a growing secularism. We find a clear nominalism. People are name-only Christians. And then we find a, a robust Christian commitment among some, but that has not broken out broadly and widely in the sense of a, of a movement. So we're, we're hungry for that, right? We're hungry for that, and as, as, as well we should be. And, so, and that's, why, that's why groups like Geneva Push exist. And, and so how, how do we get to the place where we see that broader, larger multiplication? I, I wrote a book uh, called Viral Churches with Warren Bird that you graciously quoted um, at the beginning. And it was actually based on a research project and uh, that we, we researched in the West. That's been, again, my focus is in the Western world as a missiologist. Um, and we wanted to look at what would be the characteristics of movements, because here's the thing I want you to miss. It's it's not not to miss. It's not just Australia, but there are actually 
34 Western industrialized democracies in the world. It's not just Australia, but in those 34 Western industrialized democracies, there are no church planting movements, the way missiologists, particularly David Garrison, has largely defined the term for much of uh, evangelical Christianity, at least, and mission agencies. There are 34 Western industrialized democracies, and there's no church planting movement among majority peoples in any of them. And so sometimes we hear rumors of them that, well, maybe in, there's this movement of house churches here or this movement of missional incarnational communities here. But I can tell you, having, having done research, having, having looked into those things, they tend to be, um, they tend to be a bit of uh, urban legends. For example, um, we, I, I, was, I was doing this research and I have said on many occasions there, there, were, there were no church planting movements, as David Garrison had defined them, in the West, and someone would call me and say, well, no, no, there's, there's one here. And so I would, I would call the people the place. I've actually visited some of the places, and I would, I would go and, and do research, and they would say, no, no, no it's not here, but it's, it's here. And they would give me another place, and I would, I, so I would call them or sometimes visit, as I did, actually, in, on four or five occasions, and I'd get there, and they'd say, no, 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 there's, it's not here, but it's, but it's here. And so I, I would then go there, and, and, and eventually they started pointing me back to the places that I came from, because there's this perception that there, there are church planting movements when there really right now aren't. Um, if there are, I would want to celebrate them and tell you of them and, and point to them so we could actually see them around the world. And so what we did is we sort of draw some, drew some, put some data uh, drawing from, uh, from both uh, history, and I'll talk some about history, but drawing also from current practices. And, and our desire was to move beyond addition and actually to get to genuine uh, church multiplication. And I want to talk about some of the principles that we would say, we've seen and exhort you towards these as we kind of take a look. Um, so, so again, this is from Viral Churches Moving Beyond Addition. And so um, let, let me kind of walk through the, the principles here. First, um, it, it, part of the reality is, is in the West, we lack a culture of reproduction, a culture of reproduction in, in many parts of the world. For example, I, I was training at a seminary in Romania. And in Romania, which right now has been experiencing rather robust multiplication and growth, um, the students at the seminary uh, there that, that I was teaching at, in order to graduate from the seminary, they had to have planted at least one church in order to be a graduate. It was a graduation requirement. You say, but Ed, you can't, you can't require that. And we, we have rules and regulations, and perhaps that's one of the reasons we don't have multiplication. Um, is when you create a culture of reproduction, the normal course of things, in the normal course of things, uh, people, uh, organizations, institutions, churches, they multiply. Well, we have been a long way from multiplication in the West. And so in order to bring about this culture of multiplication, it requires a re-emphasis, a re-engagement of the ideas of multiplication that are, that are a bit different than what we're, we're accustomed. I, I, I dare say, I think that we've become more uh, Jerusalem than we have Antioch. And let me, let me explain a bit what I, what I mean. Um, in the New Testament, we find a, a kind of a rather fascinating uh, dichotomy that, and I don't want to overread into it and be hermeneutically irresponsible, but one of the things that we find is, is the, uh, the Jerusalem church and the Antioch church begin to become uh, different uh, centers with different values. Uh, as a matter of fact, we don't find any record of the Jerusalem church sending out anybody other than to check up on the people sent out by other churches. In other words, if Jerusalem sent somebody, you were generally in trouble. People from Jerusalem were here, and it's like, uh-oh, what have we, you know, so, so, and again, I, I'm, 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 I'm overemphasizing, but you'll, you'll recall some of the incidences. And, and, and what happens, though, is that Antioch, and we see this in Acts chapter 11, and what we find is, is that the, the church at Antioch becomes this great sending church. Um, I, was, I was not that long ago in Singapore, and the Christians in Singapore said to me, we want to be the, the Antioch of Asia, the, which is a great phrase. But nobody's saying we want to be the Jerusalem of Asia. Um, and, 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 of course, when they said they wanted to be the Antioch of Asia, I felt obligated to point out that Antioch is actually in Asia. Uh, and that was a little awkward. But nonetheless, um, 
And it's, it's, but their point was, is that they wanted to be a great sending place, a place that was evidenced of multiplication, and that takes place in Antioch. Now, there are a lot of, there are a lot of reasons. Some of them may be maybe even cultural. We look in Acts chapter 11, and those who were scattered as a result of the persecution, this is Acts 11, 19, that started because of Stephen, made their way uh, as Phoenicia, you know, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the message to no one except the Jews. But then it begins to expand uh, from there. They're first called Christians there, but the, the Antioch church sends out, um, in, we find in Acts 13, in the local church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, and then it lists some of the names which are less and less Jewish and more and more Greek. And then as we were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them to. And they prayed and they fasted and they laid hands on them and they sent them off and they go to Cyprus. And, and so what happens is, is that Antioch becomes this, this model of reproducing ascending church. Now part of that may be that Jerusalem is sort of the center church when they have a when they have a crisis or they have a controversy, we think of the Acts 15 Council and other places, they sort of, they sort of bring the people back together. But here, here's, what I, here's what I want to say to you, is that I think if we're going to see multiplication movements, it's going to be ultimately launched from Antioch churches, not Jerusalem churches. Now, now again, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm metaphorizing. I get that, right? So you say, well, what about, what about this? But, but stay with me for just a second. Uh, first of all, uh, Antioch was the church that came out of the persecution and, the, and some of the, the, what was a minor diaspora at that time, later followed by a, a major one to come. But, but so, so Antioch becomes this place. And one of the things you'll find, if you want to see a church planting movement, it's generally going to come not from, and this is hard sometimes for us to hear, not from the established and entrenched, but rather it's going to come from the new, and the new is going to multiply in a more likely than the established and the entrenched. Now, there are exceptions to that, of course, but what I would say to you is this, is, is we've already heard somebody say on the stage a minute ago that we wanted to be a part of a church that planted churches, and matter of fact, at dinner time, I was sitting down with some people from Adelaide who were concerned about my smarmy comments about Adelaide, and uh, which I really made none. I nonetheless just said the name, and some people chuckled. It's not my fault that they chuckled. Um, but but they, they, one of them came from a, a church plant, and it was interesting. I was sitting next to her, and she, she described to me, well, we're a church, you know, Trinity, she said. I yeah, I know Trinity. I drove by it, and I saw it there, heard great things about it. And, but we're, there's a church, and she said the church planted here, and then that church planted planted us. Well, here's the thing. Um, what we find is, is that churches that begin to plant churches become hubs for planting more churches. And if you look around the Western world, sometimes it's a revitalized church or a re-engaged church like a, like a Trinity or, or something else. But, but here's the thing you find. Here's the thing you find is that what happens is, is that new branches begin to shoot off of old trunks and then they become bright spots of green that multiply and that multiply and that multiply. But one of the things she said to me was so helpful was that a church had planted a church had planted a church. Every church planter I know nowadays, particularly places like this, says we want to be a, a church that plants churches that plants churches. The, the problem is everyone says that until they actually get to the place where they have to do that. And it's awesome to say that. I, I remember when I was... Um, you know, I, I planted a church in, in uh, Erie, Pennsylvania, which is a place in the northeastern United States, sort of a Rust Belt town. Um, and I was kind of isolated from my denomination. My denomination is stronger in the south. The nearest church in our denomination was two hours away. Um, and we didn't have a lot of contact. Our church was different. It was a non-traditional church and a denomination of, of very traditional churches by and large. And, and so, but I had gone to a boot camp they had put on, and they, they told us, and I was new and I was young, and they said, you should, uh, within three years, plant a daughter church. As a matter of fact, we heard this phrase, if you don't plant a church within three years, you probably never will. And so I said, well, then we better plant a church within three years. So on our third anniversary, we, planned, we, decided, we actually decided to plant two churches on our third anniversary. We called it having twins. Um, and by the way, having twins is hard, uh, just for the record. Um, so, so, so soon after, uh, we had planted these two daughter churches, and, and it was interesting because they asked me to be uh, a seminary professor to teach church planting. And I, 
And I, sa- I remember saying to Stan Smith, you wouldn't know him, but I said to Stan Smith, I said, well, why would they want me to plant? Why do they want me to teach this? You know, I'd done a doctor of ministry. I didn't have necessarily a terminal research degree, very common in seminaries in the States. And, and they said, I said, I mean, all we did was, you know, we, we did what you told us to. We, we planted two and, and, and he planted a church. We're having to plant two and, and, and we do that. But nobody actually does. Yeah, we tell everybody to do that, but nobody actually does. Um, and, and I thought to myself, well, that's, see, that's part of the problem. But because of the isolation from my denomination, I didn't know any better. So we were willing to make the sacrifices to be an Antioch church that gave up and sent out. We sent out about 20% of our people, a substantial amount of our budget to plant daughter churches. And I will tell you, it would have been easier to be a Jerusalem church. We didn't know any better. The question will be if we're going to see, if Geneva Push, and which is sometimes term, termed as a network of networks and helping you in different networks plant churches, if, if we're going to provoke a church movement in Australia, it's going to be because of the reckless abandon of church planters and churches that want to be more like Antioch than they want to be like Jerusalem. By the way, Jerusalem, interestingly enough, historically, um, it doesn't become the most healthy of churches. Um, it, it, it actually increasingly historically turns inward. There's some gaps in the historical record, but Irenaeus and some others soon in Ignatius begin to speak about uh, the church at Jerusalem. And eventually, depending on which story you read, it somewhat reverts back into Judaism rather than engaging into the broader world in which it finds itself. And I, I, I do wonder if there's not a lesson to us here, that it's easier for us to be about ourselves, to focus on ourselves, and eventually all we care about is ourselves and people like us rather than being an Antioch church, which is worth, I think, so much more. And so, so when we talk about movements, uh, we can talk about church planning movements, and I want to uh, modify that a bit. Um, we can see that it requires the kind of of culture of multiplication, the spirit to multiply everything that we actually see in churches like Antioch. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and, let me, and let me say that I, I think that it might also be helpful to talk about multiplication as a culture because Antioch modeled that culture. But one of the reasons Antioch could be a multiplying church is that it was filled with multiplying disciples. It was, and I think that's one of the key things. I, I remember years ago I was speaking for a, uh, a Wesleyan group um, do we have Wesleyan groups in Australia? Some, they're just not allowed at this meeting. Um, the, uh, it is the Geneva push. Um, but, um, but, but, but I was speaking at a Wesleyan meeting. They're kind of their national gathering. And they, told, they asked me to speak on, on, uh, on this, on church planning. But I was preaching through a series of texts to do this. It was more of a sermon than a seminar, as I'm doing here. And, and while I was there, they said, we want you to preach on multiplication. I said, great, I'm going to preach on church multiplication. And they said, no, 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 we think everything should multiply. And I love that. I stole that. Um, Because here's the thing I don't want you to miss, is that if the first thing that we multiply is a church, it's stunning and shocking and perhaps even detrimental to the system of a church. If, however, we've built a culture where disciples are multiplying, and groups are multiplying, and ministries are multiplying, and then that's just a natural extension that churches actually are multiplying. We're, we're beginning to see multiplication as the normal expression of the life of the church. Now, that should not shock us because disciples are supposed to multiply. And when disciples multiply, groups multiply. Um, the next book that I, I um, it's not out yet, so I'm not trying to sell you anything. I don't think you can buy it anyway um, if you want to, but it's called Transformational Groups. And it's a study, it's the largest study ever done of group, groups in church life and how they lead to, uh, to transformation and what are the factors and what does well. It's not, not out until February. But one of the things that we find is a direct statistical correlation between evangelism in churches and the engagement and multiplication of groups in churches. You want to be a church reaching people? Have groups that are multiplying and reaching people in community. Why? Because when things multiply, everything multiplies. And so that one of the things I want you to see is the necessity of us both believing in but modeling multiplication. You as a 
pastor or church leader are modeling multiplication when you are functioning as one who's multiplying disciples. When you're, remember the two things we talked about in the last session, when you're spending time with leaders and the lost, you're spending time with leaders, you're multiplying disciples, men and women hearing the gospel, being born again by its power, multiplied disciples, right? But then you're multiplying leaders, creating more leaders who become leaders, you step into leadership roles. So multiplication is modeled in your life and then evident in your church. And then my advice to your to church is to, is to actually be born pregnant. And that's a strange phrase. Um, it's pregnancy is it's it's funny because you know we we uh, we talk about pregnancy and it's a it's a multiplication. Matter of fact, um, scientists who decide if things are alive or not, which is an odd thing to actually consider whether something's alive or not, but is a virus alive or not? And people debate these things. And one of the signs of actual uh, certainty of life, uh, one of the signs of, of actually saying this is a living thing is that it multiplies. All healthy things normally multiply. You say, but how come we don't apply that to church? Now, I'm not saying that if you don't have children, you're out of the will of God and not alive. Um, but what I, what I am saying is that it is the normal thing that people will multiply. Well, if you want to multiply churches, one of the ways to do that is to be born pregnant. Now, one of the things we found when, when we see uh, movements begin to move is we see them begin to pick up pace by churches taking on the responsibility of planting churches. Churches taking on the responsibility of planting churches. Um, in the book Viral Churches, what we did is we tried to come up with a definition that we had seen in the lifetime of most of the people in this room where there were multiplication movements. We don't call them church planning movements because, because again, that term's been defined well, I think, by David Garrison in the Global Missiology. Um, thank you so much. I appreciate that. I have like options as well. Um, I appreciate you not bringing an alcoholic beverage, recognizing that I'm a good Baptist from America, um, and uh, all you wine bibbers out there. And so, um, um, but but what we did is here's how we defined a church multiplication movement, which we have seen in our lifetime in the West. Here's how we defined it: is a multiplication movement is when a movement of churches has um, has grown by 50% in the number of churches, with 50% of the people in those churches being new converts to the third generation, to the third generation. Uh, I'll explain a little bit later on how we saw that, but let me tell you one of the ways that we get there. One of the ways that we get there is to be uh, born pregnant. Odd phrase, um, it actually comes from uh, something that premiered on September 8th, 1966. Anybody know what premiered on September 8th, 1966? Very disappointed in you. Uh, Star Trek. Um, it premiered uh, six days after I was born. And one of the, the most famous episode of Star Trek, does anybody know what that is? The most famous, widely watched, it was written by David Gerald. It, I'm nerding up right here by telling you all of these things. Anybody? Anybody? Trouble with Tribbles, they yell out. Not that you ever watched Star Trek, Al Stewart. Um, but anyway. Um, but I bet you didn't know the author of the episode, which kind of turns it around to me. But anyway, um, in that episode, Al will remember that, uh, um, I won't go into too much detail because I would nerd it up, but the, like, like it's not too late for that. Um, but they kind of come, the, the Enterprise sort of comes into this planet and there's this conflict with the Klingons because that's always a conflict with the Klingons. And these little creatures are involved and they're called the Tribbles and, and they, they kind of became a cultural phenomenon in the uh, late 60s and people talked about them all over and people made pets of them and people you know they were in pet stores and they're just these little furry creatures and long story short they saved the day by eating this poison grain but but they got to get them off the ship because you know long story um and so finally they, they're taking over the ship because they're eating everything they keep multiplying everywhere and well, wouldn't that be a problem wouldn't it be a problem if somebody said man we just got too many churches in sydney they're multiplying everywhere but so, so what would happen is, so, so finally, they say, well, what happened? And so Dr. McCoy, who comes in and he says, I, I've got the answer, Jim. I've got the answer. And he holds them up. We just, we just have to stop feeding them. I know it sounds strange, but long story short, he says, here's the problem. They're born pregnant. All they need to do to reproduce is to eat. Now, I, I just kind of dream of a day when that's what people say about our churches, that all they do, they start praying 
and reading the Bible, walking in the power of the Spirit, and then there's two, and then there's four, and then there's eight. But part for that to happen is we have to actually be born pregnant. So let me, let me give you an example. And I'm not, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm using examples of my own church because Scott specifically asked me to, but I also want you to know that this is something that, that costs me too. On the first day of our service, the first day was uh, Palm Sunday, um, 2011, we announced that we would be planting a daughter church. Welcome to Grace Church. So glad everyone's here. Let's sing. Sing a few songs. So excited you're here. We're a church planting church. We're going to be planting another church. You might want to be a part of it, and we announced it the first day. We began to put money to it the first day. We, we, because here's the thing. The church plant was in us from the first day day. And we expect the churches that we send out, a church plant will be in them from the first day. We expect it to be part of their DNA, part of who they are, part of their desire is not just to reach a community through evangelism, but to reach a community through the multiplication of additional churches. And so if you, if you make that part of who you are from the beginning, then there's a natural tendency that you'll actually birth church plants along the way. Now, we've actually seen that historically at several different places. I'll give you some examples of that. Um, we, when we begin to recognize that it requires a culture of permission giving um, within an organization to say that. In other words, um, I didn't know the first Sunday who the church planters were going to be that came out of our church. Now, this gets tricky. And part of the reason it gets tricky is... is uh, credentialing requirements and theological education, and I get that. I come from a low church evangelical denomination with low ordination and credentialing requirements. You can pretty much ordain a houseplant in my denominational family. And uh, it's uh, local church driven, it's not always healthy, et cetera, et cetera. But I will tell you that there are ways to give permission that have enabled being born pregnant in different settings. As a matter of fact, let me, let, me, let me just give you a few examples historically. Um, we can see, for example, I put a couple of examples here along the way. Um, the, the Methodists and the Baptists, um, both in the UK and in the US and Canada, experienced some pretty rapid growth in history. It's not as reflective here in, I mean, there's some, to some degree, but not as reflective to some, uh, in, in Australia. But, but let, me, let me give an example. This is not in our lifetime. This is 1795 to 1810. As a matter of fact, the last time we saw a true church planting movement in the West was actually among Methodists and Baptists. They actually were quite friendly, but also quite competitive. The Methodists would sing. They actually literally marched by the Baptists sometimes, their churches, to get to their building. And they sang songs like, we're starting to a day, we're starting to a day. Um, the Baptists would say things about a place called Indiana. They'd say, Indiana, there's nothing but, but Methodists and crows in Indiana. And, and they would speak of it because they would go out and they'd plant these churches all across what was the western frontier, but we also saw it in the UK and Canada as well. There was this, um, this, this desire. But here's the thing. Um, they had very different polity. Now, polity, I'm not saying policy, but polity, how we structure churches. You might have a, an elder board. You might have a vestry. You might have a pastor and deacons. That's, that's polity. So Baptists had a very low church polity, and, and so they could ordain and did ordain uh, people through a, through a very simple process, and they, they'd raise up these uh, what they literally called preacher boys, William Warren Sweet, uh, called them the, the historian called them the Baptist farmer preacher. And so what would happen is the, the Baptist farmer preacher would, would farm for six days a week and then, and then bivocationally, as the term we use now wasn't used then, they would, uh, they would plant a church. He'd be the farmer preacher boy. He'd get a license and then ordain and plant all these churches that sort of exploded all over the Western world. The Methodists didn't believe you could do that. They had they had, they had inherited a system from Anglicanism. John Wesley actually died an Anglican. They had inherited this system from Anglicanism that, that required a, 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 license, a licensed and ordained pastor who would do certain things like the, uh, the sacraments, the elements, the Eucharist. And so what would happen is, is they, they would be on the frontier, the same frontier that the Baptists would be on, but what they would do is they couldn't have a pastor because they required a different polity to have a pastor, so they raised up a class leader. And so the Methodist 
class leader, basically had his, his counterpart was the Baptist farmer preacher boy, and, but the Methodist class leader might, might have 10, 15 of them, and they would have this one ordained clergyman on a horse who would ride around to all of those places. You know the term, that was a circuit rider. See, the Baptists didn't need a circuit rider because their polity was different. So here's the thing I want you to miss. Both found a way for the rapid reproduction of churches by giving permission for people to plant churches. We saw that among Pentecostals. And Azusa, uh, the Pentecostal movement, breaks forth and globally becomes what is now the fastest growing movement in the history of world Christianity. Growing faster, might I add, than the early church did. Um, and largely because the difference in idea of giving permission. People were given permission to say, you go out and plant a church. If the anointing was on you, and, and I don't know, I don't think there's a whole lot of Pentecostals here. Never have I seen a group of people sing 10,000 Reasons to Bless the Lord without raising their hands. And so that was actually you. I mean, there were a couple of you who penguined, but by and large, most of you did not. Um, you don't know the definition of penguin. That's called the penguin. Um, but... Whereas the fine educated denominations required you to go through this program and this program and take years, um, five, six, seven, eight years to be prepared to be clergy, uh, Pentecostals would go out because somebody said the spirit, the anointing was upon them and they'd go out and plant a church. In our own lifetime, we've seen the Vineyard and the Calvary Chapel movements, um, not, not the movements they once were now, and certainly went through changes and even challenges and shifts. But for just a moment, let's, let's not be the fault finders. Let's be the truth finders and say, what, what did we learn from them? They gave, they gave permission for people to plant churches in a way that created a rapidity of church planting that the Vineyard and the Calvary Chapel in the, uh, in the 80s in particular were actually growing at 100% rate per year for some years. And if you look at the Calvary Chapel, and I actually have a friend who does research on churches and goes into churches and analyzes them, they had the highest conversion rate that he actually could find was among Calvary chapels that were planted, and the highest percentage of people who became Christians were in those Calvary chapels. They said, but what about, what about, what about, just don't what about for just a second. Ask the question, what space can we find to give permission for more people to plant more churches within the polity God has given us. Say, well, our polity is a high polity, right? I came to Christ uh, in, an, in an Anglican tradition, uh, higher polity. Uh, well, well, can we do something there? Well, if, if not, then we, then we really might want to ignore the greatest Anglican missiologist of all time, a guy named Roland Allen. He's just helpful to ignore anyway because he really kind of messes with us, and he messes with us in a way that is the most disturbing way to mess with people. He messes with us by pointing us to the Bible rather than pointing us to our traditions and practices. So he writes books like this. Listen to the title. The title, matter of fact, you don't need to read the book. Just listen to the title. Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours. And he drops the mic and walks off the stage. Um, the Case for Voluntary Clergy. Another book he wrote. The Spontaneous Expansion of the Church and the Causes that hinder it. Now, here's the thing I don't want you to, to miss. Um, it was interesting. I was actually speaking to um, the group of split off, I don't know if that's the right term. They probably wouldn't like that term. I was to the, to the desired reorganized province of Anglicanism in North America. I've had the privilege of walking on the journey with several of the uh, reorganized traditions in the alphabet soup that, soup that has become Anglicanism in North America. And I was speaking at one of their formational meetings. And it was interesting because, um, you know, there's all these seminaries that left because the, the predominant Anglican expression there. And, and then they were now here and there was all these pastors and, and uh, bishops and archbishops. And, and, uh, and they're, they're kind of different than, than you Anglicans here. There was a lot of smells and bells um, and a lot of purple and... Um, People dressed a little fancier and they had hats. You don't have the hats. Uh, maybe you have the hats, but, you know, no one's worn the hats around me. Um, and it was, it was interesting because I, I presented some of this information. One of, one of the heads of the, one of the seminaries who had left what had largely become a denominational tradition that has uh, left and forfeited the gospel raised 
his hand and he, and he said, but how will we guarantee theological orthodoxy if we don't provide this? And he kind of described the pathway to theological education. Here's, here's what I said. I said it really smiling. I said, if there's ever a group that ought not to think that theological education guarantees theological orthodoxy, it's the people in this room. And they nervously looked at one another. And, but largely they were a denomination of educated people who were educated out of orthodoxy. But here's the thing I want you to hear. I believe, now here's the people, Ed doesn't believe, that, you know, I, I, I know how this works, right? I make a list of things and you go about and talk about me when I'm gone. Um, the, I'm a believer in theological education. I have two masters and two doctoral degrees from seminaries. I'm on the faculty of two schools. Um, but what I would say is this, is that we have to ask the question, how can we both have robust theological education while giving people permission to plant churches and see theological educators as partners in that process, not as gateways to that process. Now, someone's going to get mad at me now, uh, but that's okay. People have been mad at me before. Um, so, so what I would say is, we looked at history. Now, of course, you can, you can, you can dismiss all the instances in history. We're not Baptists, we're not, ba we're not Methodists, we're not Pentecostals, we're not the Vineyard. We don't even like some of the things that they have done, but at the end of the day, the percentage of people who are devout believers in Australia declines each year. The percentage of people who are nominal believers in Australia gets squished each year. Their nominals are moving towards secularism, not towards robust Christianity. And part of the answer has to be that we plant churches all across Australia that are preaching a faithful gospel, that are supported in preaching that faithful gospel through educational institutions that are partnering in the process of doing so. But we are giving permission to people to plant churches that plant churches that plant churches. You say, well, we can't do that within our polity. You probably can. You probably have alternative credentialing tracks that you're already using for migrant leaders, um, for immigrant communities, for visible minorities. And so why not open those doors to church planters who then can become partnered with established churches? Not dissimilar to the way William Beasley does it in Chicago. William Beasley, an Anglican rector who leads a network of churches that are led by lay catechists, leaders within the movement who have not necessarily had the education to go through the credentialing process, but are planning churches, which he oversees as a circuit-riding Anglican minister throughout the Chicago land area. I just wonder, does Melbourne deserve less? Does Adelaide deserve less? Does Brisbane deserve less? I don't think so. And I think we have to not talk ourselves out of giving permission people to plant churches that God may have called them to plant. But I'm preaching now and I probably shouldn't do that. Remind me again, how long am I supposed to go? 15 more minutes? I can do that. Don't, you don't have to look stunned. I can do that. Last time you gave me five minutes. Sweet mother of pearl. Um, number nine. Al, was that you? You just laugh with great... That wasn't you. All right, you were not amused at all, were you? Um, didn't you just love Al Stewart? Don't you just love the joy that he... I'm super serious, just the joy that he brings... Anyway, I, I do appreciate him, even though I don't know quite what happened to his foot. I think he was probably encouraging some more church planners. Uh, the... Um, um, what I would do is I, I would also, um, number next, is I'd recognize cultural permission versus organizational permission is to recognize that you can say, go plant churches, but if your system always points people to plant churches in ways that are not rapidly reproducible or even slowly reproducible, ultimately you've given them permission, but your, your organization permission, but your culture doesn't allow them. So one of the things I would encourage you to consider is to open more lanes, is to open more lanes. In other words, um, I noticed, I, I noticed you have Target here. I'm a little confused that Target and Kmart are both owned by the same company, I understand, because they're competitors in our world. Do you have um, Walmarts in Australia? Be thankful. Um, seize the moment and live in joy. Um, all those things you might have seen that, actually, I was sitting in a, um, an Adelaide hotel room watching the news for America while people assaulted each other at Walmarts on Black Friday. Um, that's actually how it is regularly at Walmart. Um, but if you go to a Walmart, we have Walmart in my town, uh, it's like a Kmart or a Kohl's or whatever it may be, is 
what, what happens is, is there's, they're huge, uh, really monuments of American consumerism, but consumerism anywhere, Western consumerism. And there'd be 20 lanes for checkout, 20 lanes for checkout. And every time I go there, I go there and I'm lulled and tricked into the fact that there are 20 lanes for checkout. I think this will be a fast experience. But every time I go there, there's only one of the 20 lanes that are open, and there's 17 people in that lane. And so you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait. And the obvious answer is real simple, is to open more lanes. Can I just tell you? There's a long line of people, well, maybe not a long line, but there's a line of people in the West, in Australia, that would plant churches if they had full-time jobs, full-time support, and full-time funding. And I will tell you, it is worthwhile and essential that we support them. Some people say, well, you know, I can give $20,000 and see a church planting movement in India. Well, first of all, your money will probably undermine the natural reproduction of indigenous peoples planting churches in India. Uh, now, now, again, we can be careful and engage those things with church planting missionaries who are not engaging in processes that lead to dependence. But what I would say to you is it is a good investment to fund and resource church planting in Australia. But here's the deal. Even if we had $100 million through, through all the denominations represented here. You can't buy your way into a church multiplication movement. You just can't. That lane just will never have enough money and resources. So here's what you got to do. If you're going to have a multiplication movement, I'll show you, you got to open more lanes. That may mean um, lay people who are being part of a team that's planting a church and partnering with another parish church nearby. It, it may mean that there's a, a group of people who are being sent out and they go in the process of becoming pastors along the way. Maybe, maybe people who meet in storefronts rather than established buildings. It may be people who are having house churches. You say, well, house churches? I've seen some of those house churches. Those, I don't know about those house churches. But what I would say to you is, is you're going to have a real hard time with the New Testament if you don't know about those house churches. Because the first church building didn't show up for about 100 years we have historical reference of. And so, say, but Ed, that's, that's kind of far out of what we're, what we're thinking. And I get that. I get that. But here's what I encourage you to do. If you're planting a church, let's say you, you've been, Lord has led you to plant a church in, uh, in Darwin. And you might plant a church, but you all might also recognize it needs to be a series of, of other churches planted that are house churches in partnership with your church. And you're opening up more lanes, reaching more people that otherwise, otherwise might not be reached. So it leads ultimately to us understanding that we have to, to do some of these things. We have to overcome fear. We have to overcome fear. Um, say, but Ed, we're, we're nervous about theological orthodoxy. I'm nervous about theological orthodoxy. But I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. Um, there's no evidence that theological orthodoxy is protected by diminished church planting. Quite the contrary. People who want to plant churches tend to be orthodox evangelicals. Can I tell you? Um, Again, it's one of those things where you sort of debate with it and I say something. Um, liberalism tends not to reproduce. It can. But evangelicalism tends to reproduce. And so that means, to me, we need, we, so we need more churches that look like, um, well, the one I preached that Sunday. We need more churches like the one I preached that last time I was in Sydney or in Melbourne. And, but we also need more churches that are going to be ultimately uh, bivocational. We need some that are going to have different languages. Meets in storefronts are going to be lay-initiated, are going to be house churches, are going to be missional, incarnational communities. We need to, to find space and place in partnership with other evangelicals for churches that plant churches that plant churches. Now, now my people, my denomination, we're a very um, we're a conservative, inerrantist, very conservative denomination. Um, I mean, it doesn't seem very conservative to me because I sort of I'm that conservative. So, uh, but we tend to be suspicious of things that are new. Um, we have a little expression: if it's new, it's probably not true. Um, it keeps us, you know, keeps us happy. Um, the, you know, also that reflects in our traditionalism. You know, I've often said at my denomination's annual meeting, if the 50s come back, we are completely ready to go. Uh, and we are geared and prepared. Um, but because of that, we tend to be exceedingly cautious. And church planning and missiology is reflective of that caution. By the way, there's a reason for that. Historically, um, mission endeavors have been places where 
things have been kind of taken too far, over-contextualized, whatever it may be. But among my people, what we do is when we see, you know, sort of something that doesn't look like what we're accustomed to, right? You know, brick building, white columns, you know, sing a few songs, preach. Um, Something sort of crawls out of the primordial ecclesiological soup of culture. What we do is we, we kill it, we autopsy it, and then we decide if we like it. Um, it's, it's, it's not always worked that well, to be perfectly honest. Um, here's what I would say. If we're going to get to church multiplication movements, we're going to have to probably stretch ourselves to, to love the lost so much that we're willing to be an Antioch church rather than simply a Jerusalem church, to, to risk some things, not, not risk things that take us away from uh, some of the marks of a biblical church that should be present in every time and every place. But here's the thing, and here's the thing I found talking to so many evangelical believers around the world, their marks of a church often look like the marks of the traditional church from which they come, not the marks of a church as described in the New Testament. So if we're going to get to genuine movements, let me say it's going to take sacrifice and risk. Let me talk about sacrifice for just a minute. It's going to take sacrifice in this way. The non-sacrificing version of church multiplication is not working. So we can keep doing it, but we're ultimately not going to reach Australia. As a matter of fact, statistically, we're going the, uh, the wrong direction. You say, well, you know, that's all the you know, liberal Protestant churches dying. And that's, that's, a, that, that, that's a big part of it, statistically. You can't, when you look statistically at evangelicalism, and in the United States we call it mainline Protestantism, but you don't use that term as much here. When you look at two, they're, they're, they, they are not statistically similar. There might as well be two different religions statistically. But I will tell you, as you look at the numbers here, um, evangelical churches, and that's hard to define because people define it differently, um, they're not thriving either. In the States and UK, they're actually doing a little bit better, not by much, not thriving by any stretch of the imagination. I don't have the numbers on New Zealand, to be perfectly honest. Um, in Canada, we've actually seen some growth, but you know, growth from 10 to 10.5% is not exactly time to toast. Um, so here's what I would say to you, is if we're going to genuinely see movements that break out, first, it's going to require sacrifice on our parts. Sacrifice in our churches to send people out, to take the risk to do that. Sacrifice on new churches to plant from the beginning, being born pregnant, plant churches that plant churches that plant churches. Sacrifice on the part of educational institutions that are going to say, we want to partner with the church multiplication movement that's going to take place in Australia. So we're going to find ways and means to connect uh, with just-in-time training, with in-place training, so that church plants can, can have leaders that are raised up and developed from and within the harvest. And so it's going to take sacrifice at different levels. But I will tell you, it's, it's worth the sacrifice because we've seen the impact in some places around the world. But also, it's going to take risk. It's going to take risk in that some of you are going to risk people to send out to be a part of church plants. It's going to take risk in that some of us are going to go out and uh, do so without a, without a paying position. You're going to, someone's going to tell you, we don't have enough money. Now, I, I used to run, to my knowledge, the largest church planning deployment program um, in the Western world. I, I, uh, we deployed uh, 100 church planners one year under, under the program that I ran. And I sort of had a simple test, and it really probably wasn't right, but Spurgeon was sort of this way. Spurgeon would, um, people would come into Spurgeon's office, and I, maybe I fancy myself a Spurgeon, I don't know. Um, but Spurgeon um, would sit in his office and someone would come in and, and they would kind of cast their vision. I'm going to plant a church. I want to do this and this and this and this. And then Spurgeon would sit back and put his hand on his stomach and he'd say either let's do it or some variant thereof or you would say to this young preacher boy, son, I just don't see it. And that was it, man. You, were, you could not be a church planner. And there actually been, uh, I think it's a great PhD dissertation, um, by Rod Earls on Spurgeon's church planting strategy and impact in London. Amazing. I mean, it's worth, worth reading. It's on my website at newchurches.com if you're interested in reading it. Brilliant strategy. 
Um, for me, I would sit in my office, and occasionally a student would come in. I was teaching at a seminary at the time, and later became the director of the national or the North American program. And, and I would always ask them. Um, they would come in and they'd say, I want to plant a church, and I and I would say there was a trick question, and I know, maybe, I, maybe, maybe this is the Spurgeon didn't have trick questions, but I did. Um, I said, so what are you going to do if we don't approve you for funding? And most of the time the answer was, I'm going to go probably try youth ministry. It's always youth ministry. Um, church planning, youth ministry. Um, you know, I'm going to be a pastor. I'm going to try to get another job. I'll try to be in campus ministry and and I will tell you what I did is that was a failing grade. And maybe part of the reason why is when I, when I planted my first church, my denomination turned me down. I, I, they sent me a letter. Now, now, again, this is within our polity. I could do this. But, but they sent me a letter saying, you know, Ed, we know you want to go plant church in Buffalo, but you're 21 years old. Are you nuts? Um, it really wasn't what they said, but it was close. And, and, and ironically, I became the guy who would later turn people down for my denomination. Um, but in my denominational tradition, um, you, the, the mission agency nationally didn't determine whether or not you said yes or no. They just determined whether or not you got paid or not. And so I went to the inner city of Buffalo, New York. I got a job blowing insulation and construction, and I planted a church among the urban poor who respected the fact that I actually worked with them blowing insulation. And so later on, years and years later, as a seminary professor had gone through all this, I would say to somebody who said, I'm not going to go unless you pay me as then you probably shouldn't go. And I, I would just say that I would exhort you to consider the risk that we may just want to say that there are a lot more people out there who need to be planning churches that can go through our assessment. Eugene Push has assessment and coaching and all the great system elements that are necessary but what ultimately it's going to have to do is maybe even some of you in this room are saying, Man, I'd go if I could just get the money and I'm still waiting for the money. And God may just be calling you to go and go get a job and in the process plant a church and then grow that church to the place ultimately where you can work there full-time vocationally. Or God may be calling you to stay and to plant a church, serve it by vocationally, and then ultimately plant churches out of that churches that plant churches that plant churches. Roland Allen may have it right. Missionary methods, St. Paul's are ours. So my encouragement to you, is as we look towards movements that we recognize the sacrifice and risk they both take. And I'll take a few minutes and probably answer some of your questions. My guess is that I've riled up a few questions in the course of this conversation. So I'm happy to jump in and, and to have those questions now.